Torah studies. This is Torah studies, our weekly look and exploration of the Torah portion. Torah portion of this week is Va'es Chanon, Va'et Chanan, depending on how you pronounce it. Either way, don't call it late for dinner. All right, I don't know what that means, but we are going to explore a theme that is prevalent in tonight's class, which is all about two things. Number one, first theme is about preconceptions. Everyone's got them. Everyone's got a preconception. You came into this class with a preconception about preconceptions. You see that? You didn't even know it, but you did. Because, because I told you so. So preconceptions, everyone's got preconceptions about something. And the notion of early childhood education or early education as described, as um, advocated by Torah. These are the two major topics of tonight's class as we explore this week's Torah portion. All right, so let's talk about the Torah portion. How do we get to preconceptions? How do we get to, to early childhood? So here we go. Torah portion is Veschanan and Vetchanan, and in this Torah portion, Moses continues his final message to the Jewish people. 37 days, each and every day, he gathers the people with a shmooze, with some encouragement, with some criticism, you know, constructive criticism, um, and all it's all about kind of his farewell, his loving farewell to his people to make sure that everybody is going to carry the baton. Speaking of which, the Olympics are coming up. Raise your hand if you're aware of the Olympics. Yes, we know what the Olympics are? Japan. Japan. Yes. Now, in the 1980s, I think it might have been 80 some when was when were the Olympics in the Summer Olympics in Los Angeles, California? Los Angeles was 84? Wake up in the middle of the night to watch. You nice. Alright. So Los Angeles, yes, correct, LA, Los Angeles. Okay. So Rabbi Schusterman told the story today. We had a staff meeting and he mentioned the story, which I love. I heard it before, but it's a really great story, so I'll share it with you again. I'll share it with you. And I will hear it myself say it again, because I've heard it before. So here we go. Um, it, was not, it was after the 1984 Olympics at some point, and Rabbi Shusterman had his bar mitzvah. His father gave a speech at his bar mitzvah, at Rabbi Shusterman's bar mitzvah. What, where was he living? In Long Beach. He grew up in Long Beach. Yeah, California. Yeah. California boy. So he had his bar mitzvah, his dad spoke, and his message was like the Olympics. You know, like the relay races, you pass the baton. So too, so he talked about the Olympics and passing the baton and how every generation coming of age, bar mitzvah, yada, 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 right? You can, you can, I, I gave you enough, you can write the speech already yourselves. What happened was, it was such a nice speech that, and his father's a bit of a writer, so he, um, he decided to write it down. And he submitted it for a Chabad publication called the Yiddish Ahim, which is like the Jewish home, not like, it translates to the Jewish home, and it was a, like a monthly or a period, I don't know, I don't know how often it came out, uh, some sort of periodical with articles and essays and whatnot. So he wrote this article. And the Rebbe, the Lubavitch Rebbe, actually edited every edition of this, of this, um, of this catalog, of this magazine. And the Rebbe read the article, and, he, and I, I think I've seen this edit, and like slash marks through the whole thing. Like the whole thing that was on the Olympics, slash marks, and saying, he wrote a note, like a comment on it in Hebrew, saying something along the lines of, the source is idolatrous. That was it. Boom. The source of the, I mean, right, Greek, Greek gods. So we don't, we don't need to like, I'm going to use the Yiddish word, we don't need to like get all involved in it, in, par, in, in, in analogies and parables and metaphors and bring it down to Judaism. It's got its thing, we've got our thing, and that's it. Now, 
That's just an interesting story, but I mention this because I, I caught myself saying the phrase, pass the baton. Nonetheless, that's a long way of just commenting on my own, uh, my own turn of phrase. Yes, does that make sense? Does the story make sense? Let me check in with you guys. Yes? Yes? I'm getting a lot of like, what was that story? Did that story not make sense? Yes? The Rebbe was essentially saying, you have something that is a global phenomenon, but it begins in idolatrous practice, the source of which is idolatry or, or pagan gods and, and, God, and worship of gods and human sacrifice, etc. So maybe it's not such a Jewish thing. That's no, it. The, the, the source was, it was an Olympic, it was a, an athletic contest. Was Zeus involved? <laughs> uh, I, I don't think he ran. All right, listen, it was great, huh? I, I'm, not, I'm not an expert in this, but I don't mind Googling it after class. Whatever, anybody can Google it and see if you find any, uh, any pagan uh, sources. I'm not, listen, I'm telling you a story. This is the story that I've heard, and, and that's it. Now, getting back to our story. So Moses is about to pass the baton. He's about to pass the baton to Joshua to lead the Jewish people after his passing. So he's gathering the people and encouraging them. This week's Torah portion is a best of. Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? We got the Shema. The Shema. Shema Yisrael, right? We got the Shema in this week's Torah portion. We have the repeat, because if you thought the first time was great, the sequel is even better, right? So we got the repeat of the Ten Commandments. We have, what else is in this week's Torah portion? Other, other stuff, other, other like top hits of the uh, 80s and 90s and today. You can pr probably realize which decade I grew up in. Um, anyway, so it, there's a lot of top, top stuff going on in this week's Torah portion. And again, the Shema is in it, which brings, uh, bring me, brings me to today's topic. So the, one of the most important mitzvot that we have, one of the most important Jewish obligations that we have is to do what we're doing right now, right? Which is Shemus about the Olympics. No, which is study Torah. Studying Torah is one of the most important mitzvot. Here's my question. Here's the question. Where does it say in Torah that you should study Torah? Where does it say it? Aha, trick question. Where does it say in Torah that you should study Torah? How do we know that you're supposed to study Torah? You ever wonder? You're wondering now? You're wondering now. Okay, right, what's the source? Does it say in the verse, and oh, by the way, don't forget to study all of this and you'll be tested on it. I mean, is there, is there a source to this? How do we know that you're supposed to study Torah? Because there's 630 mitzvot, and one of them, one of the 613 is study Torah. Uh, where, where does it say it? Richard. Oh, no, sorry, Paul, go. Yeah. Isn't there a mitzvah that says you're supposed to write your own Torah? Yes, yes. Now, writing is one thing. Writing, you copy it from an existing scroll. Actually, you have to copy it from an existing scroll. You cannot do it by memory. You have to look at a scroll. You have to have an existing kosher scroll open and copy it letter for letter, word for word from that existing scroll. That doesn't necessarily imply learning Torah, that just implies that you're writing a Torah and you're having a Torah. Now, you might ask the obvious question, well, why would you have it if you don't, why would you write it and have it if you don't study it? Ah, uh, who knows, who knows? Where, where's the verse that says you have to study Torah? So the answer is, I'll, I'll tell you the answer straight up. The answer is from the Shema. Oh, oh, Richard, I knew you had something. I thought I heard you were, I thought I sensed some movement from your, uh, from, from the box. Go, Richard, jump in. So I, I don't know where it's from, but it's in the prayer book about uh, visiting the sick, dowering the bride, attending the, 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 the grave for the study of Torah. Uh, I, I was trying, I, I've waved them all. Yeah, good. I, I look. Good, good, good. So the, so what Richard is saying is that the, um, the what's it called again? The, um, 
in, in the prayers, right? In the prayers, it says that the Talmud Torah can agriculum that the Torah study is you know e- equivalent to all the mitzvot, all the great mitzvot. Sure, where'd they get it from? Where'd the rabbis get it from? How do we know that there's a mitzvah to study Torah? Yeah, the rabbis, we, we know that it is, but what's the, what's, the, what's the written source? So the answer is from the Shema, which is in this week's Torah portion. Where does the Shema say to study Torah? You guys remember the Shema? Oh, good. I mean, several places in this parsha. Yes, good. 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 Excellent. Excellent. Good. So hold on one second, Chazan. Let me trans. Let me do some translating. Let me do some translating. Okay. But actually, hold on. Maybe we have it in our text. Let me see if we have it here. Yeah. You know what? I don't need to do translating. Who needs, right do, who needs to do translating when we have a text? Right I'm going to share. I'm going to perfect. I'm going to share my my uh, my screen with you, and we're going to do this together. Okay. So for those of you online, you now see this screen. For those of you in person, we are on page number fifty-five, and here we go. Text number one. Okay. Last week I learned that it's hard to hear um, when the texts are read in person. Not by me, so I'm going to read all the text, and that's it. We're, we're listen. We're, this is a work in progress. We're figuring out the best way to do this. I'm going to read the text for right now. Text number one from Deuteronomy six seven. Here we go. The Torah says, "This is in the Shema, and you shall teach them." What's them? Them are words of Torah to your sons, and or to your children, and speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk on the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And that's essentially what Chazan Ben said. Right? You shall teach them to your sons, to your children. Speak of them when you sit in your house. Speak of them. Words of Torah. When you sit in your house, or when you walk on the way, or when you lie down, or when you rise up. In other words, we should be completely consumed, completely obsessed with words of Torah, studying Torah, and teaching Torah. What's interesting is, what's interesting here is, and this is something that um, the commentaries point out, um, and the, uh, the halachic, um, the halachic um, authorities point out, is that the source of learning Torah is intertwined with the mitzvah of teaching Torah. There's no clear source independent that says, you shall study Torah. It's in the context of teaching your kids, it says teach your kids, and you should speak about them, which implies that if you want to teach your kids, you probably have to know what you're teaching, right? So if you're teaching your kids, you have to know a little bit about the Torah to teach them, otherwise, how are you teaching them Torah? So, but it's in the context of teaching, that study kind of comes up. This is not my observation. In other words, it doesn't, it doesn't come from me. This comes from none other than Maimonides. Let's take a look at text 2a. So again, in your booklets, it's on page 56. Let's see this, it's on page 56. On the screen, it's on the screen. And this is from Maimonides, Hilchot Talmud Torah, the Laws of Torah Study, chapter 1. And this is how he begins the Laws of Torah Study. Maimonides, again, just to, just to uh, refresh your memory, Maimonides lived about, what was it, like eight, nine hundred years ago, and he essentially collected all of Jewish law and organized it in just an incredible way. So here we go. Rambam says, a father is obligated to teach his son Torah while he is a minor. As the verse states, and you shall teach them to your sons and speak about them. Uh, here we go. Let's continue inside. Just as a person is obligated to teach his son so too he is obligated to teach his grandson. As the verse commands, and you shall teach them to your sons and your grandsons. That's a different verse. Let's continue. This charge is not confined to one's children and grandchildren alone. In other words, it's not only limited 
teaching Torah is not limited to one's physical blood relative descendants. Rather, it is a mitzvah, Rambam continues, it is a mitzvah for each and every wise man to teach all students, even though they are not his children, as the verse states, and you shall teach them to your sons. And the oral tradition explains, your sons refers to, these are your students. So here we have now already uh, a bit of an interpretation, or um, I don't know what you want to call it, like a non-literal understanding of it, which sa says that when, the, when in the Shema, Vishinat Mlevnecha, teach it to your sons, it doesn't mean only literally your sons, it means anyone. That's what we're doing Students. Now, right? That's what we're doing, yeah. Well, I don't know that I'm teaching as, as much as facilitating a conversation. The Torah is teaching itself, hopefully. The text, Rambam is teaching you. I'm just helping introduce you guys, right? Um, but nonetheless, this is what's so going humble. on. So humble, Rabbi Ari. Uh, you know, I only said it so that you would comment uh, humble, but thank you for... for, uh, for <laughs> no, I'm just joking. So, so essentially, what Rambam is saying is it's a mitzvah to teach our kids. It's a mitzvah to teach our grandkids. It's a mitzvah to teach anybody that needs to learn Torah, even if they're not related, because that's, that's what our sages tell us. Your sons doesn't mean physical sons only, but also all students. Let's continue. A person... Oh. But in most... No, Rabbi, excuse me for yeah, a yeah. But in most Sidurim, and I, I'm not sure if it's in the Chabad Sidur, one of the first prayers that you, that you find after Modani Lechonecha, is yes and all of that stuff yes so it's a constant reminder to us on a daily basis correct not just in the this week's Torah Parsha yeah right? agreed agreed it's a it's a it's a constant reminder that we have to study Torah and teach Torah and, and we see the children studying Torah but but here's here's really the punchline look at my look at Rambam the last paragraph here on page uh, 56 text 2a look at the last paragraph he says a person who was not instructed by his father in other words if somebody never was taught Torah as a child right so that person is obligated to arrange for his own instruction when he can understand as the verse says states and you shall study them and take heed to perform them so essentially and again, I, want, I, I, I need to highlight how kind of almost we're backing into this idea of studying Torah, right? The Maimani starts by saying it's a mitzvah to teach Torah to your kids. It's a mitzvah to teach Torah to your grandkids. It's a mitzvah to teach Torah to anyone who needs it. Oh, oh, by the way, if you haven't studied yourself, if you weren't taught yourself, then you should learn it on your own. How? So it's a weird way. I, listen, I'm, with all due, due respect to Maimonides, it's a bit strange. He should... If I was writing this, here, what I would say. It's a mitzvah to study Torah. And once you have some information, share it, pass it along. You know where it says that? That model? On an airplane. There's a lot of drama on airplanes nowadays. I've been like, I don't know, all these weird things going on. But that's, not, that's neither here nor there. Um, what is it, what, what, what's the announcement? I don't know if they make announcements anymore. I think Delta makes funny videos. No. Oh, yes, yes. What's the who? Oxygen masks, right? Please God, they don't need to deploy. Everything is good, right? But what happens if the oxygen masks deploy? Put yours on first. You put your mask on first before assisting another, right? They don't say assist the other. And if no one assisted you, then you should put it on yourself. That's what's going on here with Rambam, right? You should teach Torah to someone else. And if no one taught you, then you study it on your own. What's going on? It's so weird, so strange. It should be. First things first, you study Torah. And then you teach it to your kid. All right, so that's, that's, uh, that's what we're noticing. Now, let's take a can look. I, can I say one 
one more thing. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Rabbi. Yes. You probably mute me forever. I, I don't know about that, but but no. But if you don't mind, keep it brief because we have a lot. We have a lot to get to. Thing is, interesting thing is correlating to the Ten Commandments in this week's parsha, right? The only cause and and effect commandment, right, is kabed avichavet yimechalom right. 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 It's uh, it enhances long life. You honor your parents so that your so that your days may be lengthened. Right. In this week's parsha, interestingly enough, uh, in Chamishi, just before the Shema, uh, and it's chapter six, uh, verse. I just happen to be looking at it because, you know, I'm reading the Torah this week and so I've been studying it all week long. Um, and it says here, uh, Nice. So it repeats that same cause and effect. So and the only cause and effect commandment, right? Right. Those are the only... The two is one is to honor your parents. The other one is to teach your children and your grandchildren. Intergenerational stuff. Like yeah, I love it. It's yeah. a good. It's a great observation. It's all about continuity. It's about one generation caring about the next, and one generation yeah. caring for the prior. It's yeah. like this crossover. Yeah. Beautiful point. So, yeah. but but so we're just noticing though that when it comes to the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, when it comes to the mitzvah of Torah, it's really written in a bit what we would say a backwards order. It says first it talks about teaching your kids, and then kind of as an aside, also oh, don't forget to learn also. Now we see, yeah, exactly. Put your own mask on. Now we also see this in text two B. So let's let's put this up on the screen, and, and if you don't mind, let's turn to page fifty seven for in our booklets here. So 57 is again from Rambam, and this comes from another source of Rambam, which is Sefer HaMitzvot, the Book of Mitzvot. And Rambam writes as follows, text 2b, the 11th mitzvah. This is his count of the 613 mitzvot and the 248 positive mitzvot. He says, number 11, the 11th positive mitzvah, is that we are commanded to study and to teach the wisdom of Torah. This is called Talmud Torah. Okay, that's what he says. The source of this commandment is, how do we know that we, we have a mitzvah to study? He says study first here. Study and then teach, which makes sense. Conceptually, study and then teach. He says, what's the source? The source of this commandment is God's statement, teach them to your children. <laughs> See that the source of studying Torah is teach them to your children. This commandment is repeated numerous times. Learn them, do them, so that you will learn them. This commandment is stressed and encouraged in various passages spread throughout the Talmud. And essentially what we have here is, again, this idea that studying Torah is kind of wrapped in the context of, of, um, of teaching Torah, which, which is going to raise two questions that I'm going to ask in a second. But first, I need to look for something have to make sure that our power is going to continue. Give me a second. You see this? Always have. For those of you at home, I didn't realize my computer is low on battery. I'm in a bit, bit of a different setup, so luckily in the arc, don't ask me why, there is an extension cord. <laughs> don't ask me why I know this, but there's an extension, may, I may have put it there. There's an extension cord by the arc, so we will be okay, hopefully. Talk amongst yourselves. Not really, I mean, yeah, like uh, maybe 60 seconds. Friends, we're back in business. Okay, so 
we have now this idea that Torah study is a mitzvah. It's uh, commandment number 11, mitzvah number 11. And this is not in the count of the Ten Commandments. This is just Rambam's count of the mitzvot. This is mitzvah number 11, study Torah, teach Torah. And how do we know this? Teach it to your kids. Okay, and so we're going to ask two questions. All of this evokes two questions. Question... Oh, hold on one second. Let's want one more, one more source. One more source. This is from the Code of Jewish Law. Take a look. Please turn to page 58, and I'm going to pull it up on the screen as well. This is Rabbi Yosef Cairo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law. He writes as follows. You'll love this. There is an act of mitzvah on every Jewish person to teach their son Torah, their child Torah. If one's parents did not teach them, they're obligated to study on their own. You see that? Again, Maimonides alluded to that before. I mean, he said that, but here we have it clearly defined in the Code of Jewish Law, in Shulchan Aruch, Yoredeh 245.1. He says, it's a mitzvah to teach Torah, and if you didn't, if your parents didn't teach you, then you have an obligation to study on your own. Once again, we find that there is some sort of a binding of, to of Torah study with, um, with teaching, and the question is why. Why can't the mitzvah Torah study be independent on its own? Why can't it just be, just, you have to study Torah, and you have a mitzvah to teach Torah, two separate things. No, it's like there's, there's somehow, it's, one is wrapped up in the other. Okay, let's welcome Dr. Maxi. Welcome, it's great to have you here. Okay, so we're, we're left with a question, or we're about to formulate the question, and the Rebbe actually asks it right here in text number four. Why is it that Torah study, the mitzvah to study Torah, is sourced in the mitzvah to teach Torah? Why isn't it freestanding? Take a look. Text 4. It is puzzling. The rabbi says, it's again page 58, text 4. It is puzzling. It would make sense to first state the overall mitzvah to learn Torah, namely personal Torah study, and only thereafter to state that it's not enough to learn, your own, to learn on your own, but you also must teach others starting with your own child. It would make sense. If you and I were kind of you know, formulating the mitzvah of teach, studying Torah and teaching Torah, we would say, look, number one is you got to study. And number two, you should share your wisdom. Number one, you put on your oxygen mask. And number two, you help someone else put theirs on. That makes sense. Chronologically, conceptually, you know, intellectually, the whole thing, spiritually, the whole thing makes sense. You study Torah and then you share with others. But Torah has a different formulation. How do we know that you, that you need to study Torah? Because you have to teach your kids. Why is it? Why? Why isn't it? Why doesn't it have its own source? Why isn't it a freestanding law of study and then teaching? Does that make sense? Yes. That's question number one. We have a second question. Question number two. Question number two is: Why is it that the concept of studying Torah, which we know now is linked to teaching Torah, is specifically linked to teaching the Torah to a young child? Why do, why do I say young child? It says son, yeah, but, but, but specifically, as Rambam says, he, Rambam uses the word katan. Katan means a young child, a young child, a minor. So not like a teenager and not, you know, whatever, your son who's like 20 and ready to go, you know, with Kabbalah. No, this is your, your child who is a katan, katan, who is a, a, young, a, a, a young child. So why is it? That number one, the mitzvah of Torah study is linked to Torah teaching, teaching Torah to kids. And why specifically young kids? That's the question. It's the second question.
Um, I think I may have mentioned this last week in one of the classes. Okay, well, before, before I, I continue, does that make sense? Do the two questions make sense? Yeah? Why is learning linked to teaching and why are we talking about teaching specifically young kids? Okay. A good question um, points us toward the direction of the answer. You know, not a good question just throws you off, you know, off kilter. But a good question is essentially what a good maze does. You know, like a good maze, like the good ones, like the, one, the back of cereal boxes. That was a joke, right? Like a good maze. So you get into the maze and you're like heading down a path and you're following it. It's like this whole thing. And then you hit a wall and you're like, Ugh. so you retrace your footsteps. But now you know not to go there, right? You're not going to go back there. I mean, that would be silly. So you go to the next option. You hit a wall. Okay, great. So you retrace your footsteps and now you know where to go. Let's say there's four options. You hit a wall three times. Well, now you know where to go. So a question is essentially a wall that goes up. A wall that goes up. And it says, you can't, the, the, the logic doesn't work. You're hitting a logical wall, it, you can't go past. So one could get frustrated and say, oh man, I had a good idea, and now I hit a wall. But the really curious mind says, the person who's really, you know, really wants to acquire knowledge and wisdom says, oh great, I'm so glad I hit a wall, because now I know where not to go. Now I know where to go. In other words, the wall points me in the right direction. The obstruction, the question, is actually leading me into the answer. Does that make sense? So that's why it says that a good question is already a half an answer. Right? A good question is already, you're already halfway, halfway to the answer. I would say, I would modify it. I don't know where this, I know it's a Jewish quote in some Jewish language. At some point someone said this. With all respect to whoever authored it, I would actually go further and say that a really good, maybe with a really good, a really good question is almost 100% the answer. You see this, you see this way of learning, the way the Rebbe would teach. If you study, um, like the Rebbe's talks on Rashi, after the Rebbe's mother passed away in the 1960s, the Rebbe dedicated many, many Shabbat Fabrengans to expounding and exploring the commentary of Rashi on that week's Torah portion. Not, the, not all of it, it's a lot of Rashi, but the Rebbe would take one Rashi and, and, and analyze it. And I, I know I've spoken about this before, but I think it's really important to, to, to mention it again. Because it's, it's, it's unheard of, this type of, this, this, this methodology of study. And it wasn't just that the Rebbe was teaching, the Rebbe was teaching us how to learn. It wasn't just the Rebbe te- giving an insight. Because in insight, you just, oh, here's the explanation. Boom, you're done. It was a derech halimut. It was a way to learn, a way to think. First of all, the Rebbe established a whole philosophy behind Rashi's commentary. Like, Rashi wouldn't address it if it was obvious. Rashi only addresses things that are on the basic level, of whatever. He has a whole framework of understanding Rashi. And then, when, when, when a given... And Rashi, by the way, is the primary commentary of the Torah. Rabbi Shlo, it stands for Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki. His name was... Rabbi, well, he was a rabbi, his name was Shlomo, the son of Yitzchak, Shlomo, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, the acronym of which rabbi is R, Reish, Shlomo, Shin, Yitzchaki, Yud is Yud, Rashi, Reish, Shin, Yud. Um, okay, so Rashi, the great commentary on the Torah, so, so the Rebbe would ask, would quote a Rashi. That was pretty, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Something that people had studied for the last 800 years. 
without any, without any problems. And the Rebbe would ask a dozen questions and completely eviscerate it, like shred the Rashi to pieces. And you, you, one question, another question, another question, literally like a dozen or more questions on two lines of text. And you thought it made sense. You walked in, yeah, I understand Rashi. And after those questions, you're like, makes no sense at all. But every single time, every single time, the questions that the Rebbe asked on Rashi were not just eviscerating Rashi. I don't mean eviscerating like the tradition, but not just you know, ripping it apart, but showing you what it doesn't mean and leading you in the direction of what it does mean. And so often I do this, it's, I don't know if it's a game, but it's a, it's, it's a thing that I do when studying one of these teachings on Rashi is from the questions, try to see where the Rebbe is leading the conversation for the answer. And you don't always get it right. I don't always get it right, but get pretty close a lot of times. The question, the, a, good, a good question leads you to the answer. And in this case, the reason why I'm saying all this is because I asked you two questions. Those two questions are the answer. And you're thinking, what are we talking about? We ask questions, not answers. The questions are the answer. Let me, let me restate the question, and you tell me if you can think of what, I'm, what I mean here. The question was, how come the Torah links Torah study, the mitzvah to study Torah, with the mitzvah of teaching Torah to kids, and specifically young kids? Those are both questions combined. Right? Why would Torah couch, frame, right, contextualize the mitzvah of studying Torah with the, mitzvah, with the mitzvah of teaching Torah to young kids? So what's the answer? Because you know the answer, right? It's obvious. Because the way we're supposed to learn Torah, which is the mitzvah of learning Torah, is in a way that kids learn Torah. Are you with me on that? That was the answer. That's it. The question is the answer. The question is, how come Talmud Torah, the mitzvah of studying Torah, is framed in the mitzvah of teaching Torah to kids? And the answer is because when we study Torah, we're supposed to do it like kids study Torah. What does that mean? All right, that's what we have the next uh, 24 minutes to talk about. Marnin. You're saying that it brought up a saying that I heard in a little child. I can't hear you. I'm going to repeat the question. There's no, that's impossible to hear from, from this mic. Yeah. And a little, right, it's saying, and a, and a little child shall lead, I think, is that a messianic prophecy, that a little child is going to lead the, um, the, the, Christian, the, the, the uh, Christian, um, oh, maybe, okay, that too, who knows, listen, it's Torah studies, anything goes, no, I'm kidding, <laughs> right, exactly, but so, so there's one thing that when we teach a child, so we're learning, but this is, this is a little bit of a different twist, it's the way we're supposed to learn Torah, is the way that a child learns Torah. In other words, Torah is meant right. Torah is meant to be studied by us adults in a way that a child studies Torah. What does that mean? Childlike. Childlike. Now you can already imagine what that means, right? I, I think you, you, you and I can already imagine what that means, right? What does it mean to study Torah like a child? It means wonder, curiosity, openness, good, all things that we're going to talk about. And we have some really beautiful insights. Some really beautiful insights. To share. Yes, Richard and Susan, jump in. Just a quick, just a quick comment. Uh, weeks ago, uh, you had mentioned that um, learning, uh, it's, it was a big mistake to learn Torah when you were a kid because you got all the wrong ideas and, and, and therefore learn as adults more sophisticated. 
And now you're saying, to, to me, it seems a flip of that learn it with a childlike uh, point of view. Yeah. That was my, so, so can you help uh, coordinate that with me? What, what, why um, don't, don't get so perturbed by a contradiction? It's okay. <laughs> why, th- why are you getting so worked up about a contradiction? So I said a few weeks ago that it's not great that studying Torah as a kid has a disadvantage. And tonight we're talking about an advantage. Good. I'm wrong and I'm right. I'm wrong and I'm right. No, no, you're right and you're right. You're right and you're right. No, that was right what I said a few weeks ago, and it's right what I'm saying tonight. Savensuk Vumaret. Rabbi, this is Steve Stray. Could it have something to do with Tabla Blanca, the, the blank slate, which is close to a child? Oh, uh, yes, yes. Starting totally blank. Yes, we're going to talk about a blank slate in a moment. We actually are, yes, Steve, excellent point. We're actually going to cite a Mishnah from Pirkei Avot, and, and uh, Mitra Shmuel commentary and the Rebbe's commentary on that commentary that is going to be absolutely magnificent, but it deals with blank slates, but in a moment. But first, getting back to Richard's question. Richard's question is one sec. So I want to clarify two things. First of all, what I said a few weeks ago that, you know, we shouldn't teach kids. So obviously, I, I, I think I said then, I don't mean this literally, but, right, that's, I preface that by saying I don't mean it literally. We have to study Torah. We have to teach Torah to kids. As kids, we have to study Torah. It's, that's the bread and butter of, of, of Judaism and Jewish life. So that's, that's a given. What I meant to say is that sometimes Torah is taught to kids, and the kids get the impression that's a big Baba Misa, that it's a big fairy tale. There was Noah and a boat and animals and Adam and Eve and a serpent, and they get that story, and it, it sounds juvenile because it's taught in a juvenile way and it sounds juvenile to the kids and the child when they get a little bit older they reach their teenage years or they become bar mitzvah and they check out and they say oh judaism it's so nice really back to tiktok that's that's what happens right what happens is it's nice sure it's nice for fairy tales baba mices but i know all the fairy tales so i think i'm good i can check out now because i know the fairy tales that's the challenge. The, the problem is not that we're not teaching or studying Torah to a child or as a child. It's when it's reduced to the point that the child doesn't have a sense that there's something deeper and we don't continue to, um, to make the Torah more sophisticated as the child gets older. If you're teaching a 13-year-old bar mitzvah boy or a 12-year-old bar mitzvah girl the same way you teach a 5- and 6-year-old child, that's a problem. Because at 12 and 13, they're curious, and they have real questions. You want to tell them a, a story about Adam and Eve, and a boat, and a ship, and a Noah, and a this, and a that, you, you're, you're talking to the wrong crowd. It's like giving a touch-and-feel book, right, to a teenager. You go to, the, you go to a bookstore, they have different categories of, of books. You're giving a touch-and-feel book. Touch the fluffy bunny. Uh, thank you. I don't want to touch fluffy bunnies. I think we're good. I know those are some of the best. I wrote some Jewish touch and feel books, by the way. You can Google this. A touch of Passover, I wrote. You have touch of Passover. It's it translated in multiple languages. It's an all-time bestseller. Honestly, it was the easiest book I wrote. Touch the crunchy matzah. Feel the sticky wine. Touch the, the, the whatever. It was like the easiest book ever. The script wrote itself. Legit. The hardest part was sourcing the various touch and feel items, like to get the proper stickiness of the sticky in, in the right shapes. Anyway, back to our story. Enough, enough about, about that stuff. So I said a few weeks ago, we have to be careful to make sure that when we're teaching kids, that we're opening up their, 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 their um, perspective that to, to, to a Torah that is sophisticated, as intellectually challenging, that's meaningful. What I'm saying tonight is there's still value in studying Torah with the wonder, and as Steve said, the blank slate of a child, which we're about to talk about. Which one is true? They're both true. 
They're not mutually exclusive. They're both true. So events of Umarat, it's like the story, the two guys with the rabbi, you know the story. All right, we're not going to tell the joke. Everyone knows the story. We're moving on. Um, okay, so back, and now you're wondering, what's that story? Two guys come to a rap, to the rabbi, and one, one, each one, they're fighting with each other, and one presents his side of the story, and the rabbi says, I think, you're right, you make a good argument. The other guy says, are you kidding me? And he says, another side of the argument, and he says, you're right. And the, from the other room, the rabbits and the rabbi's wife says, how can they both be right? And the rabbi says, you're also right. So events of Umaret, depends on what you're talking about. All right, I told you everyone knows, this, knows the story. Hitler on the roof. There you go. Yes, exactly. Now, back to our story. So what does it mean to study Torah like a child? Because again, Torah study, the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, the mitzvah to study Torah is wrapped in the obligation to teach Torah specifically to a young child, which tells us, again, the question is the answer. Why? Because there's a message. There's messaging in there. We're supposed to study Torah like a child is taught Torah, like a child studies Torah. So what does that mean? I'm going to share with you this incredible text. It's really, really beautiful. Take a look at text number five. Okay, it's on page 59. For those of you who are here with the booklets, 59, uh, text five from Pirkei Avot, uh, Ethics of the Fathers, uh, chapter 4, Mishnah 20. This is 420 in, in Pirkei Avot. It says like this, Elisha ben Abuya said, by the way, Elisha ben Abuya, holy cow, this guy, this rabbi, I shouldn't say guy, this rabbi lived a very complicated life. He was one of the most righteous and scholarly rabbis of his time, and, and ultimately he turned away from, from God and, uh, and observance and became a heretic, he said, I don't believe anymore. And uh, at the end of his life, he came back again to, to Judaism. Very, very complicated person, very complicated story. But here is one of his teachings. Elisha Rabbi, Benab- I got a, Rabbi, a quick interruption. If you want to read a good book about him, uh, it, don't, it was called As a Driven Leaf. Interesting. Okay. Okay, I'm done. Okay, good. <laughs> Text five. And by the way, um, Richard gets commission from that book. I'm joking. Text 5. Uh, Pirkei Avot says, Elisha ben Abuya said, he, listen to this, he who learns when a child, to what is he compared? You know, when you study Torah as a child, what, what is that like? To ink written upon a new writing sheet. And he who learns when an old man, to what is he compared? To ink written on a rubbed or erased or rubbed out writing sheet. Wow. That's what the mission says. When you study Torah as a child, it's like fresh ink on fresh parchment. Oh, it's beautiful. And when you study Torah as, an, as older, nah, it's like the paper has been, you know, it's, it's not its first rodeo, it's not fresh, it's not. So the obvious question is, we're denigrating studying Torah um, in, in, our, in our later, later years? That doesn't make any sense. We're saying the Torah is only valuable insofar as we study when we're young, but when we're old, then we're already washed up? Is that what it means? That's what it sounds like. So there's a, an incredible, and I'm telling you, I, I learned this, and it took my breath away. It took my breath away. It's so beautiful, it's, it, it's, it's dazzling. Text number six, I'm going to read it inside. This comes from the Midrash Shmuel. Okay, he's a 16th century commentary that did a lot of commenting on Pirkei Avot, on, on, uh, on, on what we're studying. So here's what he writes. He says, this passage assures the senior student that he or she should not despair and say how... One sec. So well, before I get inside, he flips it the opposite way. He says, no, 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 no. Don't think that the mission is telling us not to bother. Oh, when, if you're a kid, great, it's going to help. But when you're older, eh, waste of time. No, God forbid. On the contrary, 
This passage, back inside, this passage assures the senior student that he should not despair and say, how can I learn now? My mind is akin to a paper filled with foolish worldly matters and it cannot accept sacred matters. How could I expect to write script on top of other script? A person might say, what, I should study Torah? I should begin studying Torah when I'm older? I have all these other ideas in my head. I've studied all these other foreign these other philosophies and ideas and, and values and whatever. It's too late. If I studied when I was a kid, it would have a chance. It could form, it could shape me, but now I'm already set. You, we should never say that, he says. Why not? Thus, back inside. The Mishnah states, second paragraph, the Mishnah states that while it is certainly preferable to study while young, for it is like writing on fresh paper upon which no pen has passed, a senior student should not despair and think that his studies are like writing on an already occupied sheet of paper. Rather, it is as if the previous script has been erased in such a manner that is no longer discernible. What is the meaning of, and this really only works in the Hebrew or more literal translation. The Hebrew it says, When somebody studies Torah as an elder, or in an old, older years, to what is he compared? And the Mishnah answers, To ink, ksuva, written on niar on paper that is erased. So you think, paper that's erased, that doesn't sound good. But the Midrash Mul says, doesn't sound good. It sounds great. <laughs> what does it mean? It means that no matter what other shtuyot, what other nonsense. nonsense has filled our heads up until now, up until this point that we're studying Torah, we have the ability to etch-a-sketch it out. You know what etch-a-sketch it out means? You know what I'm talking about, right? Ready to go. Ready to go, clean slate, and that's it. This is the Midrash Mul. When you study Torah when you're young, blank slate, you don't have to work too hard. When you study when you're older, you need to erase, but erasing is possible so that the Torah lands properly. The Rebbe says, that's the Midrash Shmuel. I told you we have a Mishnah, the Midrash Shmuel, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Here's what the Lubavitcher Rebbe says on this Mishnah. Take a look at text number 7. Okay, text 7 on page 61 in the booklets or on the screen. Okay, when the Mishnah meet... Sorry, what the Mishnah means when it says, he who learns Torah when a child, look at how the Rebbe interprets this, is that the person learns. When a child doesn't only mean um, based on your passport that you're a child, but it means when a person learns with a sense of humility, putting himself aside and approaching it as a child. Studying with such an approach is really the only way for Torah to be truly absorbed as ink on fresh parchment. By contrast, when one's approach to Torah study is based on the sum total of their own intellect and rationale as a senior, without any humility, he cannot absorb the Torah, which is God's Torah after all. The Rebbe says, a bit of a different twist, ultimately ending in the same place, but a bit of a different twist. The Rebbe says, what does it mean when the Mishnah contrasts, chapter 4, Mishnah 20, when the Mishnah contrasts studying Torah while young, or while older, it doesn't mean biologically younger or older, it rather means what's the mindset, what's the approach. Are you studying Torah with a fresh perspective, a blank slate, I'm open to learning, I'm open to receiving divine information, I'm open to, you know, seeing what's, what, what the Torah has to say, that's a child-like mentality or approach in studying Torah, or am I saying, I know everything, I've already got it figured out, let me see what Torah has to say if it fits into my, my, uh, my, my, my worldview. That's a different approach, and that's ultimately not, a, not, not, uh, not, not, not the ideal way. Um, this ties in, I will say, to the third class on the in the Resurrection of the Dead course. Um, I, hate bringing back, I hate bringing that course back. That was a joke. But in, 
I'm here all week. But the resurrection of the dead, the, the Thursday night course that we had, um, talked about this idea of blank slates. We asked the question, the resurrection of the dead, it says that those that are alive at the time of the resurrection, that are currently li- alive, that have never passed away, so they will pass away, and then a moment later, be resurrected. And I asked the question, like, what? that seems so silly. If the goal is eternal life, so then just, just live. Why die and then live again? doesn't make any sense. And the answer is fresh slate, clean slate, blank, a blank sheet, blank sheet of paper. And it's similar to what we're talking about tonight. When studying Torah, the goal is to study like a child. The goal is to study fresh perspective, open mind, no preconceptions, ready to absorb, ready to receive with humility. Come out with a fresh perspective every year. Donna is, can I phrase it as a question? Is it, I don't know that you're asking a question, but I'll ask it as a question. Donna's saying, one second, we study Torah every year. So that means we have information. If we study, I know this is not what you asked, but I'm asking the question. All right, don't worry, I'm taking, I'm taking your point and, and making it into a question. So Donna's asking a question that she didn't even know she was asking. So one second, how can we study Torah, this Torah portion of Et Hanan, with a blank slate. We studied it last year and the year before. We studied it every year. And what's the answer that she gave without even answering the question? The answer is, it's in the approach. We might have studied it last year, but when we study it again this year, you know what we say? We're open to learning new insights, ready to see new ideas that we didn't notice before. If we approach a Torah portion, right, and say, I already know it, what are the odds that we're going to learn something new? <laughs> Nil, garnished, nada, nothing. It ain't going to happen, right? Because our minds are closed. You know which is Matasio. You know Matasio, the singer? Mm-hmm. Remember Matasio? I remember when he used to come to Yochabah. Yeah, he slept on my couch. Matasio, like the Jewish reggae guy? Yeah. Yeah, yeah he was here. He did a concert um, on... Um, Where Ponte Market is now. What was that place called? Right here. The Masquerade. The Masquerade. Masquerade, yes. Masquerade. He did a concert of Masquerade. It was Arab Shabbos, Friday afternoon. He did the Roxy. He did the Roxy before, yes. He did, um, he did Little Five. He did, um, what's the place? The Steelers Bar. I, I know it is the Steelers Bar on Piedmont. City Winery. He did. He also did, um, come on, help me out here. Uh, the, the one on Peachtree, uh, I mean, Piedmont, the, the Piedmont, and, Piedmont and, and Monroe. Come on, guys. Piedmont and Monroe. At the corner. Something in the park. Something in the park. No, not... not Smith's Old Bar. Smith's Old Bar. All right, anyway, here's the point. No, the real point is just how many bars do we know in Atlanta. No, and musical venues. No, but the point is... The point is... Matasio, there was a line that he had. Your cup... Your cup's already full. Once over, hold on. That it's bound to overflow. That it's bound to overflow. Thank you. Your cup's already full and it's bound to overflow. You know what that means? It's like he didn't explain the lyrics. I know what he meant because he took it from, from Chassidus. He took it from Chabad teachings. Your cup's already full. It's bound to overflow. You know what that means? When you want to pour something new in it, what's going to happen? It's not going to go inside because your cup's already full. Bound to overflow, not in a good way, in a bad way. If your cup is full, right? And th- Sarah, you, 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 you had those lyrics, right? You were ready to go with that? Thank you. Um, so, yeah, your cup's already full. 
you try to pour in more, what's the secret to receiving? Empty your cup. Clean slate, blank slate, empty your cup. But wait, wait, I have all this information. Put it aside. Put it aside. Right? Little humility, a little humbling. Starting a new Torah portion every week, every Sunday we start a new Torah portion. Right? What's the message? Blank slate. Doesn't mean you have to forget everything you ever studied, but it means I'm open to learning something new. I'm not, I know it all, I, I have the answers. No, we're, we're open. That openness is, is completely profound. I need to share with you some more text. It's so beautiful. Oh, there's this whole thing, text 10, 11, 12, uh, 13a, 13b. Hold on. Where's, no, hold on, one second. Where's the text that I had in mind? Oh, here we go, text 8. I got ahead of myself. Okay, let's, uh, let me share my screen. This beautiful text from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, a blessed memory. Take a look at text 8. This is, I mean, we could fabrang about this all night. Fabrang meaning have deep conversations. All night about this one, text and brain. Um, wow. This is from his Haggadah that he published in 2006. Page 62. I'm going to read this. There are, okay, let me, let me give you a background. He talks about how it's a Jewish thing to ask questions. It's a Jewish value to ask and to encourage questions to be asked. Judaism is never like, oh, you can't ask that question. Ooh, that's off limits, right? No, Judaism is all about questions. But he says, let's, let's begin. There are conditions, though, for asking a Jewish question, right? Not every question is Jewish. There are conditions for asking a Jewish question. Number one, the first condition is that we seek genuinely to learn, not to doubt ridicule, dismiss, reject. That is what the wicked son of the Haggadah does. Asks not out of a desire to understand, but as a prelude to walking away. This is, I'm going to stop sharing for a second. This is some of the most powerful stuff that you'll ever, ever learn about, that we'll ever learn about the nature of a question. There are some questions that seek answers and some questions that are the answer. Sometimes we ask because we want to learn. And sometimes we ask because we want that to be our excuse to walk away. We say, how come it's like this? We get indignant. Are we seeking an answer? No. That is the answer. The answer is, it's wrong, it's flawed, I'm out. That's, he says, Rabbi Sachs says, that's the question of the Ben Russia, of the wicked son. The wicked son is not asking out of a, a genuine desire to learn, but out of a desire to make a point and to mic drop and to step and to, and to walk out of the room. That's the question that the, that, the, that the wicked son asks. Let's jump in. Let's jump back in. That's his first point. Second point. What is the second prerequisite, the second condition for asking a Jewish question? Second is, second paragraph, that we accept limits to our understanding. Let me stop in, let me jump in for one second, which means that even as we ask and we seek an answer, we know and we accept and we recognize that we won't, we'll never get the full answer because there's a limit to how much we can understand. Not everything back inside, not everything is intelligible at any given moment. There were scientists at the beginning of the 20th century who believed that virtually every major discovery had already been made, not suspecting that in the next hundred years, Sorry, that the next hundred years would give rise to Einstein's relativity theory, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, 
Gadol's theorem. Proof, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but that's how I said it. Proof, clearly. Proof of uh, the Big Bang origin of the universe and discovery of DNA and the decoding of the human, human genome. They thought, What's there? what else is there to learn? I hold my beer. In relation to the Torah, in relation to Torah, there were many German and American Jews. This is very powerful. I'm going to say this again. In relation to Torah, in other words, Jewishly speaking, there were many German and American Jews in the 19th century who could not understand Jewish prayers for a return to Zion. Why are we saying that we want to go back to Zion? Germany is amazing. We have to go back to Zion? Germany is where it's at. Right? And deleted them from the prayer book. They took it out of the Siddur. Some communities did. These, now, he doesn't even have to, does he have to even elaborate on this? You know what he's talking about, right? A few decades later, the Holocaust. And what's the safe haven? Israel, right? We have a state, establishment of the state of Israel. In direct, uh, it can be noted in direct um, response to the Holocaust. So what's the point? I'm not justifying the Holocaust. We're not giving reasons and rationales for the Holocaust. No. There's a very specific agenda. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm explaining what he's writing here. And what he's saying is that in the, in the 19th century, there were Jews who believed that they had it figured out. They had it figured out. We don't need Zion. We don't need Jerusalem. We don't need Mashiach. We don't need any of that. Because we have life is good. We have Germany. Yeah. How did that work out for you? Let's continue. These facts should, re, should induce in us a certain humility. Not every scientific orthodoxy survives the test of time. Not everything in Judaism that we do not understand is unintelligible. The very features of Jewish life one generation finds difficult, the next generation may find the most meaningful of all. Faith is not opposed to questions, but it, it, but it is opposed to the shallow certainty that what we understand is all there is. And that last line, I mean, Rabbi Sachs had a way with words, as you all know, but that last line, oh my God, that is, that's just exquisite. I'm going to say it again. Faith is not opposed to questions, but it is opposed to the shallow certainty that what we understand is all there is. What does that mean? It means that that hubris, that arrogance, that narcissism that says, I understand it, I get it, and if it makes sense to me, then it's valuable, and if it doesn't, then it should be just taken out, should be deleted, because it doesn't make sense to me. That perspective is, at best, I'm going to be, he's being nice, shallow, shallow. I mean, you could use other words, right? But it's, it's certainly shallow, right? Just because that you don't understand it, you don't appreciate it, you don't see the value or whatever, you have your own thoughts, so it doesn't have value. That's very, um, that's very self, that's a very self-centered perspective, whether it's about an individual or about an era or about a community or about whatever it is. So what's the point? Questions are holy, but there's a holy way to ask a question. A holy way to ask a question is when you genuinely seek, genuinely seek the answer, not when you're trying to make a point. A lot of times people ask questions to make a point. There might be a question mark, but it's, it's, it's a statement. So that's not a question, that's a statement. So that's not a question. When, when is a question valid? When it seeks an answer. And when there's a sense of humility in I might not get an answer that I understand. I might not fully understand this in this moment where I am now because it may take a while for me to get it or the world to come around and get it, but I'm okay with not having an answer also. This is what we call a blank slate. This is what it means to have the curiosity of a child. And let me just connect all the dots and we'll wrap it up and hopefully, hopefully we'll all walk away a little bit inspired from tonight's class. A child 
approaches a subject without any bias, without any preconception, without any sense of, oh, I know the issue, I know the answer. Child knows that they don't know the answer. There's, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, it's a, it's a fresh, and I'm going to use the word effervescent to borrow a term. It's like such a beautiful buoyancy and effervescency of a child, seeing a child explore. They're not embarrassed. About They're not embarrassed. It's not like, oh, I don't know, I should know. Because it, why should a child, the child knows that they shouldn't know. A child, to a child, everything is new. It's wondrous. It's amazing. Everything is amazing. It's beautiful to behold. It's beautiful to see the world through the eyes of a child. And that's exactly what the Torah tells us this week. The Torah says, when you study Torah, the Torah says, teach your kids Torah and watch them learn. And then you should study Torah also. Why does it say you study Torah in the context of teaching? Watch your kids as you teach them Torah. Watch their eyes light up. Watch them absorb. Watch them take in the words of Torah without bias and prejudice and preconception and I know it and, and arrogance. Just open to ideas and guidance. Torah says, do this, that, other. Sure, let's do it. Torah says, say Shema every night. Let's do it. Yo, but you don't understand. It's not complicated. Torah says, say Shema in the morning and at night. Done. We're talking about the Shema, right? Torah says, teach your kids, little kids, Torah. And then watch, pay attention. And that's how you should study Torah. I feel like this should be a meme. Right? You see a kid's eyes lighting up with wonder. Right? And the message is, study Torah like this. Study Torah with the eyes of wonder as a child. And then, it's not a full cup. It's not going to overflow. It's not going to just spill off, spill out over the side. Torah is going to enter us and inspire us and infuse us with life and meaning and a perspective that we couldn't get elsewhere. When we're open to it, we can truly be transformed by it. And that's the goal. So, in the final analysis, why does the Torah say to study? Why does the Torah give us the mitzvah to study Torah in the context of education? Because there's a lot to learn from the way a child learns. May we all study with the wonder of a child, and may the Torah truly impact our lives in the way that it's meant to. The way that it's meant to. And let us say, Amen. L'chaim. All right, questions. Let's, uh, let's jump into questions from our online crew and really our in-person crew also. We'll just open it up. Chazen, jump in. So, so um, back to where I, I, um, I sort of went back to um, the Harem um, uh, at Torah Chab. If you yeah. knew, if you said, uh, I knew. Uh, You're cutting out a little bit. Make Torah sweet. Okay. Uh, Make Torah sweet, and and in in the in the eyes of our um, of our children, and, and all of that stuff. Uh, when you start with a child, blank slate, and so on and so forth, and and you and you um, infuse in them the idea of studying Torah from the very beginning, it becomes a habit. Right. And the fact is, in the first few years of a child's life, 
own habits are being formed. Right. And so when you form Torah as part of their looking at life from the prospect of Torah, then that's going to stay with them forever. Beautifully said. And, and, yes. You know, you know, and that's why it's so important to start with them when they're when they're young. I got to tell you a story. I, I, yeah, one hundred percent. I believe is that's why the Torah says, Sure. You know, that start from the very beginning. Be- beautifully and, stated. And, and and why why do you have to start Torah? How can you teach Torah if you don't know it? So right. Learn it. You learn it, and, and then teach it. Let me tell you a story that you'll love. I think that everybody will love. A couple once came to the Rebbe for advice about education. They said, our child, you know, is now three, and we want to get an early start on, on their Jewish education, and they had questions, what to learn, what to teach, whatever, what schooling, or what early education. The Rebbe responded, why, you, why did you wait so late? <laughs> kind of like, three, it's a young age, but it took three years, right? Torah begins, moment number one. I got to tell you another story. This is a Talmudic story. The Talmud says about, I forget who, one of the great sages of the Talmud. It says, you know why he became a great sage? Because when he was a baby, his mother would bring him to the Beit Medjur, to the study hall, in a stroller, in one of those um, silver, silver cross, silver Star of David, silver Peg Perego, whatever it is, right? The, ma- the, pram. Ma- the pram, yes, the pram, exactly, with the big wheels or whatever they had 1,700 years ago. So his mother brought him to the study hall, and he was completely taken and, and absorbed in that, in that uh, aura, in that atmosphere of Torah study. So yes, what we do as, as, as children is ingrained with us. But I saw in the comments something very powerful also. So lots of good comments in the, uh, in the lots of, well, yeah, good comments in the, oh, in the chat, in the comment section. But I am also looking here, Shalom is asking questions. Steve writes, if you start studying Torah later in life, you are again a clean slate. Yeah. And that's the goal. The goal is to study Torah whenever we study Torah, right? The goal is to study Torah for, in a way that it's open to the possibilities. We've, and hopefully we're, we're humble enough to say, you know what? I have all this information that I know. I'm happy to put it aside. And, uh, and, and see what Torah has to say. It's a beautiful thing. Right. Yeah, Donna. So, getting back to what you said. I'm going to repeat the, qu- the question of the comment. Okay. I, w- I did look up, I clicked on Google. Zeus, yes, was the Zeus. foundation of the Olympics. The Olympics is founded on Zeus. Yes. I thought so. So, that brings me to a question. So, you know, the foundation of all of undergraduate four-year degrees, mm-hmm. one of the core courses is, is Greek mythology, and that they present it as... The foundation of so you're saying Greek mythology is one of the foundations of undergraduate? Yes. Okay. It wasn't in, I studied the Rabbinical College of America. Okay. I, I got my degree from the Rabbinical College of America. In the Rabbinical College of America, the RCA in Morristown, New Jersey, it was definitely not one of the prerequisites, but I hear you. I, I don't have experience elsewhere. Yeah, so I'm, question, I'm open. My, my, my question to you. So is, it, is it not kosher? Yeah. Should we not study it? I, listen, I, I could... I told you the story kind of anecdotally because I mentioned past the baton and, and Rabbi Shishman just retold the story about his dad and the theme of the speech in the article was past the baton and the Rebbe said, let's avoid, we, don't need to, we don't need to go all Olympics, right? We don't need to brand a Jewish magazine Olympics, you know, the Olympic edition. 
Olympics edition. So that was kind of the message. Does it mean, I don't know, you know, that's, that's, it's a good question. I don't know that I have the, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not qualified to answer the question. It's, uh, hold, hold on one second. Hold on one second. It's presented as our foundation, as American. As a, oh, you're saying that the Greek mythology is presented as American foundation. That's our philo- you know, it's it's philosophy. It's philosophy. It's kind of the foundation yeah. of this. So um, I want to go to the, the point here. It says, it seems universally, it says it's best to study or it's good to study Torah when you're young. Yes. You have an open mind. And then it's it better. Goes back I'm going to repeat this a couple times with different reasons yeah. about when you're older, is it a good or a bad thing? And right. The, the one with Rabbi Schneerson, he says, it, you know, when you're older, if you study it without any humility, you can't absorb Torah. That was his point. Right. What I was going to ask, or maybe it's a general statement I'd like you to comment on it, is that could it be that when you're young, because I have a teenage daughter, you could also not have humility in yes. a sense of... I'm gonna re- let me repeat your question, and yeah. And then when you're older, you regain that? Yeah. So let me repeat your question, and then, and then we'll, we'll jump into this a little bit of a quick discussion on this. So Ed is saying that, you know, we, the mission says that when you're young, you're a blank slate. When you're older, maybe not. And there was a major shmuel that said, no, when you're older, you can erase it if you want. The Rebbe said that if you have humility, then no matter what age you can absorb it, but there's always a danger when you're older that you might not be able to kind of shed your preconceptions and you might be a little bit jaded in your study and then it's not going to be pure. But when you're younger, it's, it's a pure experience. And Ed's asking, who says? Is that, or is that necessarily the case? What, what if you, you know, what, what about uh, someone who's younger and they have biases and they have their own conceptions of the world, like a teenager that has their own you know, they've got things figured out, let's say. Certainly parents have no say in a teenager's. Definitely a parent's opinion is like, I'm kidding, right? But sometimes it's not, not the highest on the list. Um, and an adult might be more open, more receptive. So uh, I, that's your question. So it doesn't fit into the paradigm where we're saying that younger is typically better. Maybe it's the other way. So I would, my, my response is I agree with you 100%. And I don't believe that according to the Midrash Shmuel or the way the Rebbe is understanding or really any commentaries that young and old is locked in as you know, a certain age or a cutoff. You know, past that age, you're in this category or before. I think it's more of a, of a, of a perspective. You know that phrase, you're only as old as you feel? Or something like that. That's, or not. If not, then I just made it up. And feel free to pay me every time you use it. No, it is a phrase. Mom, my mom says, okay. So then, don't pay me. Pay whoever coined it. I have to. Turns out, I just got dinged on my account. Back to the point here. It's it's really about a perspective. You could have someone young that is completely closed. You could have someone older who's completely open. It's a perspective. But typically, when we say young, we mean like a child, not a teenager, but like a child who's learning. Yeah, a child doesn't have any... What's a child going to say? Like, no, I actually disagree because I have a different way of looking at things. At a young age, they've never thought about it before. They don't even know what that is. Like a slide. It's a slide. I don't know why I'm going with a slide. It's in my head now. I don't know. We're going to just... We're just going to go... We're just going to go down that... So, a slide. Do you know what a slide is? I like it. I don't like it. It's a slide. We're doing it. I don't know. It's a little example, but I think it means at a very young age, there's no other information that we're comparing to. A little older, even teenager would be older, older compared to that. We have already ideas and notions and whatever, but I don't believe that it is a, I think the point is it's not a hard and fast rule based on age. It's based on, we can choose, perspective, we can choose. Um, yeah, um, so, um, I'm sorry, 
Go one ahead. second, one second. I see here, I'm looking, hold on, I'm looking at the chat. Internalizing. Yeah. Teacher's son to swim. Okay. All right, yeah, no, we're good. Okay. So, so, so um, at the end of a service every week, and it comes from the Mishnah, from Amar Rabbi Elazar, Amar Rabbi Hanina. One second, Marnie, right? good to see you. Yeah, the wine, I hope it's not Medusol. But um, anyway, that's my stick. Uh, um, the, the, um, you know, we always compare Torah to fine wine and all of that. But... Right. And 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 I think that that's the kind of phrase for for this you know lesson. And Shalom Rav Leo have a Torah You know. So so Torah, whatever age it is, the students of Torah are the builders of the nation of Israel. Yeah. That's yeah. I think this Torah portion also kind of leads to that. How do you build? How do you build Judaism? You build it by studying Torah. Hundred percent. That's something that very very well said. That's something. Rabbi, that, in, Rabbi in, the, in, the, in the in the Jerusalem uh, Talmud, I think Rabbi Nathan asks the question, "Why do the Talmud Hokan go to the cir circus?" And the answer was that. Uh, uh, when gladiators are fighting, when there are when are, there are Jewish uh, participants in in, in, the, in the in the gladiators fighting, uh, uh, you know the, the 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 crowd either puts thumbs up or thumbs down whether whether the whether the victim will will die or not, and so that's why the rabbis go to the circus. Now I, I don't know what connection that has to do uh, with the, with the Greek tradition of of the Olympics. And I'm not sure uh, the tradition of the Maccabees games, but I, I, I think somehow there's a connection between all those things. I, yeah. I what connection. I'm not, I'm not familiar with that teaching of the Jerusalem Talmud. I would need to look that up to comment on it um, intelligibly, but definitely interesting. Um, there is a, is a there is, uh, listen, I, the, the point of the class is really not an anti-Olympic stance. It's really, there was, uh, there was no intention of tonight's class to get up in a soapbox and you know, cancel the Olympics. That was not the intention. That's not. That's not my platform, huh? A week before. A week before. By the way, Rabbi Ari, it might be canceled by COVID, only by other for, issues. Only for COVID. Here, here, like COVID, COVID. But here's the point. Um, right. I, I don't know that it's that it's that it's even a question. That there isn't a dark history behind these things. I, I, I don't know for sure, but that's my understanding. Um, I think the Gladiator Games, though, was Rome and not Greece, but they might have been intertwined. I don't know. We got to look it up, or we don't have to look it up. You do whatever you want. Hold on one second. One second. The point before was that I, as an NYU undergraduate, you were taught that this is the fundamentals of, of Western thought. Yeah, that's right. They presented as the foundation. Foundation of Western thought, right. Yes, yes. Right. And not like a Greek, and, 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 and it might be, right. Right. Well, she's talking about she went to NYU. You went to NYU, NY yeah. and in an NYU, that's what they were teaching. Yeah. Can you imagine not an yeah, NYU? Can you imagine in, in the, in the, with the, M, the, the MRE? Right. Anyway. There's an incredible book. Hold, hold on one second. Ben, Ben, Ben. Out of print, and it's called The Hellenization of the, the Jews. 
There you go. And and it and it writes about all the descendants of uh, of Matityahu and how they became basically, you know, the rabbis didn't like them because they were priest warriors kings. They wanted to separate church and state as as we know it today. Right. However, however, you know, they kept their Judaism through Roman times. Right. Know? And so even though they were given Greek names and so on and so forth, um, you know, we, we um, tend to uh, follow our traditions. And I think we always will. There'll be distractions on the way. Correct. And British Shalom is going to take care of us. I will tell you, never. Don't, I, I will not request to be called Rabbi Arius Flavius. When that happens, you then you know to go to someone else's class because I've gone off the deep end. Adina Malka, you have the last word. Jump in. Yeah. You know, I wanted to share something with you. Earlier, in, we were studying that uh, a parent should teach Torah to their child. Right. And my father never could, but he did teach me I was a Jew. Nice. Beautiful. I love that. Very, very touching. And she, her dad taught her that she was Jewish. And that... That flame is still burning very strong. Feel good, by the way. Sending lots of uh, blessings and prayers for your good health, Adina Malka. We set prayers for you on Shabbos, Mishaberach. So I hope that you're feeling good and continue to get Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. I'm not going to take credit. The Abisher takes credit, but uh, please, God, you should only have good health. All of us should have good health. I want to sign off officially. Laila Tov, have a good night. It is great to see you all. Sending lots of love to everybody. And we'll see you guys soon. Um, we have a film screening Sunday. The next Sunday is our barbecue. I'm just giving commercials now quickly. Our IJA barbecue, open to everyone. Come and join us for some amazing food. Not this Sunday, the next Sunday. This Sunday is a film screening. Anyway, check out the website for more information. We'll see you guys soon. Take care, everybody. Bye.